The Holy Gospel according to Luke. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Here we are now in our second week at Grace Church. And if you remember our time together last Sunday, we celebrated the baptism of Jesus. Jesus' invitation, if you will, for all humanity to enter into a time of repentance, a time of changing their minds, changing their minds about who they imagined God to be or who they imagined they were supposed to be or changing their minds regarding what they thought the kingdom of God would look like. And it's an invitation that because of Jesus is always an invitation for good news. Repentance, the ability to change our minds and to turn from wrong ways of believing and wrong ways of thinking back to the way things were intended to be. In fact, as our passage this morning talks about in Luke chapter 24, and, and I would encourage you to find your Bible, find your place there in your Bible if you'd like, follow it on your phone, whatever. There are two followers of Jesus's who are on their way on the road to Emmaus shortly after the death of Jesus. They're unaware yet of his resurrection, and I, for one, don't want to wait till Easter to talk about the resurrection. I think we need to begin with the resurrection because based on the conversation Jesus has with these two followers on the road to Emmaus, it seems as if everything about what people think, what they imagine, what they expect is all about to be turned upside down as a result of who Jesus is. And really the focus of our conversation, we don't know a lot about these two individuals. This might be a husband and a wife. This might be two friends. We don't really know. And it ultimately doesn't matter. They're having a conversation with Jesus while they're walking, but they do not recognize him. We're told that their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And yet they begin, Jesus in his, I imagine, often playful kind of a way is listening to them recount these events. And then he says to them, 
what things, I kind of imagine, with a twinkle in his eye or a little smirk on his face, wondering how these two individuals are going to interpret the events that Jesus not only knows about, but personally experienced several days before. But what I wanna draw your attention to is something that these two men say right to Jesus, right in verse 21, and I put it on the screen for you just so that you'll be able to follow along with me. They say to Jesus in verse 21 of Luke 24, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now I highlighted for you the words had hoped because it's intriguing what these two individuals believe and what they say. Their hopes Their expectations, after years and years of following their own nation's people, their dealings with God, God rescuing them from Egypt, God calling Abram to follow him and from him will be a great nation. For thousands of years, the Jewish people had expected that a Messiah, a long-awaited king and ruler who would sit on the throne of David forever was going to come and was going to redeem them. Redeem just means to restore or to bring back to the way things were always supposed to be which is why I said last week that what we're gonna do over the next several weeks in this church is we're gonna talk about the beginning. We're gonna talk about the way things were always supposed to be so that we can gain a better idea and understanding of who Jesus is and why it's so important that we follow him. But these followers here had looked at Jesus. They had looked at the events of his life. They recounted them when the chief priests and scribes delivered him over and they put him to death and we don't know what's going on. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Now these men, no doubt, or these followers, men, women, whoever they are, no doubt had read the Hebrew scriptures. They had read the Old Testament story. They had read the numerous times that the Lord God had delivered his people from certain suffering or from certain defeat. They had read about the times where his people fell into sin, but that the Lord was always there and was a consistent, prominent presence in their lives. And they knew that this God was in some day and in some way going to defeat their enemies, going to set up a king and a kingdom that would never end. And you can imagine if you're following along with them that you and I would have thought the same thing. We would have thought if a king is coming and he's going to rule over a kingdom that will never end and sit on David's throne forever and bring blessing and healing and wholeness and prosperity to the world, this king can't die. I mean, staying alive is kind of important if you want to be the king. But here's what's really fascinating about this interchange that Jesus has with these followers. They propose to Jesus, again, not knowing who he is, but their conclusion about the events that just happened was that because Jesus suffered and died, he wasn't the long-awaited king. What Jesus explains to these followers is that because he suffered and died, he is their long-awaited king. Now, if you're following the logic of this, if it hits you at all the way it hits me, this ought to disturb us at least a little bit. Here you have two followers who for all intents and purposes had read their Bibles, read the Old Testament, read the promises of God, looked at God's deliverance, looked at the people's sinfulness, looked at God's faithfulness, continually, continually, continually grabbing a hold of promises, grabbing a hold of their ideas of who they think God is and how they think he would reign. And they came to the conclusion that for God to reign the way they believe he would, he would conquer and rule and defeat their enemies. But when God himself came, 
He instead allowed those enemies to conquer, defeat, and quote-unquote rule over him. Only that was the means by which the Lord God himself, through Jesus, brought about an everlasting kingdom. And when we get into this narrative, later on Jesus will have a conversation, not with two followers, but rather with all 11 of his remaining disciples. Judas has already gone his own way. But with the other 11, and Jesus will say, he opened their eyes or opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And this is something that you and I desperately need as followers of Jesus. It is one of the New Testament's um, reasons why the Holy Spirit is given to members of the church, given to the body of Christ, given to those who repent and place faith in the person of Jesus because we need the spirit of Jesus himself to help us rethink and reorient our lives, our minds, our beliefs around God as he's revealed in Jesus. The kingdom as it is pushed forward through Jesus. What it means to be human as it's demonstrated and proven for us in the person of Jesus. And this is not something that comes naturally to human beings who pick up a Bible and just read what's on the page. Because we have several people here who no doubt had picked up their Bibles or had taught it in this, heard it taught in the synagogues and concluded based on their listening and their reading and their interpretation of those scriptures that their God, when their Messiah came, would be a conquering, victorious king. And he wasn't at least not in the way they thought. And so what this does for us, I think, is for us to be honest and open and humble with ourselves and conclude when we imagine God is a certain way or that God would act in a certain way, what we need to be open and honest and humble enough to admit is that it is possible somewhere in those belief systems that those are ways of being or acting or living that we would push for if we were God. And to be open for us, to be open just to the possibility that God is not altogether like us and that he doesn't choose to rule the world the way we do. You know, I think it was in the 1940s, there was a psychologist by the name of Herman Rorschach and he developed a theory, uh, maybe he was a psychiatrist, I'm not exactly sure, I can't quite remember, but he developed a theory, many of you know it today, as the Rorschach test. It's in fact where a psychologist who's sitting on one side of the desk looks across at his or her you know, patient on the other side of the desk, has a white sheet of paper with a blot of ink on it that has formed some type of shape. And the psychiatrist holds up this blot of ink and the patient tells him or her what they see on the page. Now, the brilliance of the Rorschach test is oftentimes clients will come into a psychiatrist's office or into a psychologist's office, and they will be a little bit unsure about how much of their inner world they feel comfortable sharing with the psychologist. But sometimes it goes even deeper than that. It's not so much the client is hiding what they believe and are afraid to reveal it, but sometimes the client themselves, um, himself or herself, doesn't even know what has been buried under the surface. And yet what the Rorschach test often does for a psychiatrist or a psychologist is gives them a window into the inner world of a patient. What that patient claims they see on the page gives the psychologist a window into the human heart. The things that the blot of ink appears to be to the client will tell the psychologist what that client tends to see in the world. 
And in a fascinating way, the Bible functions like a Rorschach test. That's not all it does, clearly, but it does this in a large way that you and I tend to see what we expect to see. We hear what we expect to hear. And when life doesn't manifest itself in the same way, we're faced with a choice. Either life is wrong and the events that happened were wrong, or maybe I'm not interpreting that reality correctly. I do find it interesting that nowhere with these two followers did they ever position themselves to question, have we been interpreting the Bible correctly this whole time? They don't conclude that. They assume that they have been um, correctly interpreting it, which is what most people do in that situation. And so the conclusion they were left with was the only one left. This guy, Jesus, the one we thought would be the Messiah, the one we had hoped would redeem Israel, must not be the guy we had hoped. You know, we, interesting that they pick up on the idea that we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. And in fact, in large portion, a big portion of our Bibles deal with the nation of Israel. Close to 80% of our Bibles is Old Testament. And the nation of Israel was born through the calling of Abram, which begins in Genesis 12. And that is a lot of Bible to have God's dealings with his own people. And yet the good news as it's revealed in the person of Jesus is something that even Paul picks up on in the book of Galatians. Look at this. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says that the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Now, when many people today think about the gospel, they think about Jesus, they think about the good news of a coming king who's going to reign over all the world and bless the nations, they tend to think of something that happens in the New Testament. I have a friend who is on a Bible translating team and they are working hard at translating portions of the New Testament. Some of the, some of the Proverbs, which they think might be a gateway into a people group who has no understanding of the Bible at all, but in fact does live by several parables. But I've known um, of lots of Bibles that are printed, they're New Testaments with Psalms and Proverbs, and I'm thankful for that, except that the bulk of the Bible is the Old Testament. The bulk of the Bible is the story of Israel, and understanding our relationship with the people of Israel is important. But when Paul says that the Scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, he's referring to Genesis 12, and I just want to draw your attention there for a second. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that's a lot of words for blessing. If you look on the screen, you'll notice a variation of the word bless, bless, blessed, blessing, however you want to look at it. I've highlighted them for you for ease of visibility. But you'll notice that that word is repeated five times. I don't think that's an accident. And the way the book of Genesis unfolds, we have two chapters at the very beginning of the Bible which portray God's intentions and plans for the entire creation. His plans and intentions for mankind. His plans and intentions for harmony between relationships Harmony in a relationship with him, with one another, with the creation, and within oneself. 
But from Genesis 3 through Genesis 11, after the fall of man, and we'll have time in weeks to come to look at that in detail, we see absolute destruction and chaos. Every good thing that the Lord God put into his perfect creation began to unravel the moment man committed the first sin. And what I find interesting about Genesis 3 through 11, with the exception of the curse given directly to the serpent himself, there are five other times that the word curse is used in Genesis 3 through 11. As it deals with breakdown in families, as it deals with breakdown societally, as it deals with breakdown across the entire world and the catastrophic flood that the Lord God had to send as a result, what God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 is addressing is every single thing that was lost in the fall. And so this is a question that you and I want to pose as we begin to read our Bibles, knowing what we know about Jesus as the one who was to redeem Israel and knowing what we know about the biblical story. What was the problem that God solved through the death and resurrection of Jesus? You know, there are many people today who want to conclude that the only problem that God solved was between me and my sin, between him. But if that's the only way that you and I think about and speak about the gospel, we tend to make it, believe it or not, entirely self-centered. You see, the gospel is bigger than this. It's bigger than individual sin. It also has to do with communities and and countries, nations, and whole people groups, ethnicities. It has to do with racism. It has to do with marriage, relationships in society, relationship between brothers, class divisions, hostility, male-female disputes, slave-master disputes, etc. Which is why in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus says, if you are there offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, First, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. It's a fascinating teaching of Jesus, and here's what he's saying. It doesn't matter what your quote-unquote worship of me is like. If there is disharmony and brokenness and division and an unreconciled relationship between you and another person, the best way for you to worship me is to go reconcile that broken, fallen relationship with that brother or that sister and then come and offer your gift free and clear. It's not typically the way you and I think about worshiping God. But if you continue on through the book of Genesis, following the time that the Lord God called Abraham and promised to bless him, we get an inside track into what Abraham's life was actually like. What was life like with his wife? What was life like with his sons? What was life like with his grandsons? What was life like with Jacob and Esau or Isaac and Rebekah or Jacob and his brothers? I'm sorry, Joseph and his brothers. Because the book of Genesis lays out for us that if this blessing is supposed to come, it's going to have to navigate its way through brokenness in families, brokenness between Joseph and his brothers, brokenness between Jacob and his sons when he has a favored wife and therefore a favored son. What do you do about favoritism in families? And how does the gospel relate to that? 
Have you ever seen or have you ever personally been part of a family dynamic where there is a clearly favored child and you may or may not be that favored child and what dynamics transpire as a result of that type of favoritism? What does the good news of Jesus himself, the good news of God reigning in the hearts and lives of people, the good news of Jesus is king, what might that do in a situation where favoritism is present? And if you read the story about Jacob and Esau and the lies and deception that Jacob participate in, where he lies to his father about the blessing that, that Esau feels he deserves, and then for 20 years of Esau's life and Jacob's life, they live apart, they're separate. What do you do when you come back together at a moment of reconciliation to try to reconcile with a person you, you've wrecked 20 years of their life because of some deceptions and shenanigans that you were responsible for? How do you face that? How do you face yourself? And how do you face the one whom you've offended? How do we learn to live together as communities? How do we learn to live together as a church? How do we learn to work out our salvation, Paul tells us, with fear and trembling? These are the kinds of questions that I want our church to ask. These are the kinds of questions that I want us as a church to go back to the beginning of the Bible and to ask the questions that the Bible itself asks. And I want us to be among those who are the followers of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. I want us in this room to be followers of Jesus like his disciples were. And I want us to posture ourselves to be among the first who want Jesus to open our eyes to teach us something new. Because it's a strong conviction of mine that one of the the greatest weaknesses of the Christian church is that members of those churches do not actually know their Bibles. And so I feel a heavy weight and responsibility as your pastor to change that, at least for us here. The 55 or so of us who gather around here now every single Sunday, I want us to be students of the word that ultimately is pointing us to the living word, the person of Jesus who begins to show us not just what God is like, but also what human beings are supposed to be like. You see, everything hinges on Jesus. And so what I want us to do is to go all the way back to the beginning, very, very first page of the Bible and to work our way forward knowing what we know about Jesus, knowing what we know about the end of the story, knowing what we know about redemption, knowing what we know about salvation, knowing what we know about repentance and knowing what we know about the fact that people can read the Bible and get such a different view of God and what he's up to in the world that when Jesus comes and fulfills perfectly the commandments of God for the world, people think he must not have been the guy. Instead, what I want us to do in this church is to lay before Jesus all of our concerns, all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our ponderings about what he's like, about who we're supposed to be, about what it would look like to be a faithful Christian in America today, etc., and say, Jesus, I want you to rework that. I want you to rework me. I want you to rework us. I want you to change any belief, any idea, any ideology that may be deeply rooted in me as a person, as a family, as a friend group, as a church, what have you. And I want you to reshape us around the person of Jesus. Because I believe that if God will do that in this room, with us, in our homes, 
we will see a powerful trickle-out effect of transformed lives, of healed relationships, of restored marriages, of healed families, of strengthened workplaces, and we will watch Jesus do the work through his spirit that only he can do to transform not only our lives, but the lives of those closest to us. Jesus, would you come into our midst today? Would you pour out your spirit abundantly on us? We need you so much today. We need you every day. I'm so thankful for what you reveal to us about God and who he is. I'm thankful for what you reveal to us about us and who we are and are supposed to be. And Jesus, I thank you so much that you hold all things, uniting all things in heaven and on earth. Draw us into your presence. Draw us into your grace, we pray in your name. Amen.